the book of Exodus, and the final chapter. We have seen in chapter 39 the very elaborately decorated and beautiful attire of the high priest. The priests wore the linen garments. The high priests had very exquisite decorations, decorative vestments and articles attached to his complete attire. And we're given the privilege to study this, to read it first of all, then study it. And we can never exhaust any of this by mere human understanding. But with the divine revelation, we can have a complete, mature understanding as you press in the various furniture, the dimensions, the materials, all having to do with the tabernacle. But before they got to the stage of building, they had to be emancipated. And so we will look at what we have read in the past few months from the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And God gives us the privilege to remember that the book is about Redemption. The book is about deliverance. The book is about education of a people who came out of slavery. The book is about a God who wanted to show them how they can be intimate with him. A God who told them the difference between him and them and how they can be safe how they can be qualified to approach him. He's a God who gives all of the necessary instructions so we can come near him and dwell with him. So he took the people out of estrangement, although Abraham was their father their progenitor, they were estranged from God. And we spoke much about them losing their identity, at least in their own minds, because of severe oppression and long-time slavery, over 400 years, 430 years, oppressed, a number of generations, till the consciousness is riddled and stamped with this Servile or slavery mentality. He took them out of a place of prison and he brought them to live with him where he would set up his house, as it were, in the midst of their dwelling. 
who said that the book begins with groaning because of that situation in Egypt and because they were mistreated for a long time. With the groan, God heard. He was watching all along. But the time came for the fulfillment and God began to act as he promised Abraham centuries before. And God prepared someone to serve as a leader to bring them out of that oppression. You can imagine they would have thought this is something impossible. How do you escape the superpower of the day who has you as slaves and such a harsh harsh person, evil ruler as Pharaoh. The oppression seems to get worse. But the Lord sent a deliverer who he handpicked. And that deliverer had this God consciousness within him. He had God working in him even as he was in the foreign palace as a noble nobility and he was moved from there through a series of events to become empty so that God can prepare him, pour into him we saw how in our lives we come to God and everything, every asset, every talent, every achievement must become nothing as the Apostle Paul learned. Nothing counts when you come to God. Nothing counts when you come to God for his salvation. We can add nothing to it. Anyone that comes to God thinking they're entitled to salvation, they're entitled to something, they'll never get it. And we come humbly and say, Lord, I need your mercy, every one of us. Sometimes we forget where we came from. Sometimes when we tell other people, we may look down on them. When we tell them about salvation, when we look at their condition, woe to the person that is disgusted by someone else's misery, by their slavery. Remembering that we were once slaves. We may look at believers, or I should say unbelievers, as foreigners. We need to remember we also, as God reminded Israel a number of times later, you also were strangers in a strange land. You were slaves. So don't mistreat the foreigner. You need to have the compassion. Moses learned many things in the back desert of Midian before he can encounter God at the age of 80 in a very unforgettable event. And he was prepared. He had to become empty and then God called him and God sent him. And he went and made a declaration What God said, let the people go. Not any people, my people. God said, my people. And Pharaoh said, who's God? Who is this Lord? God would show him with ten severe plagues who this Lord is that he's challenging. God would put to shame every Egyptian deity, the demon 
powers that Egypt worshipped. There is a tremendous resistance and hardness of heart as we often face against Satan when we're trying to do the right thing. When we're trying to follow God, when we're trying to avail ourselves of the mercy of God, there seems to be opposition here, opposition there, trouble here, another trouble upon trouble. You think, will it ever end? Then our heart rejoices. What a glorious path it is when God is walking with us because he suddenly breaks through the clouds with his sunshine and our hearts are overwhelmed with his presence and his joy. It fortifies us with faith to go through it knowing that if God could do this and rain down his grace in this dismal, bleak situation, there seemed to be no hope. Oh, he lifted me out of despair. The greatest thrill is for any believer to suddenly be lifted out of the dungeon, out of the pit. that The enemy has put them in, surrounded them in. And they reconnect with the promises of God, fulfillment, and they're able to become very much strengthened and fortified against the next challenge. In this pilgrimage, each of us has embarked upon called the Christ life, Christian life. The Lord has promised, as he promised Abraham, I'm not going to leave you or your descendants, never forsake them. I have a plan. As long as we go along with the plan, God won't forsake us. And even when we get off of that plan, God will call us back. And the way he calls us back, out of his love, his wisdom, his perfection, is out of grace that is beyond any human being's ability or understanding. He sent this Moses Pharaoh hardened his heart against God's people, against God himself. And we see how God didn't put an end to Pharaoh immediately. He could have. It's no hard thing for the Lord to shut down Satan. As we've read not too long ago in Revelation, when all is said and done, the devil is dancing around and marching furiously after he's let go from that bottomless pit to gather the nations and whoever would side with him to try to overthrow God. God has recorded the end of him ahead of time. He simply says the fire came down and that was it for Satan. God so powerful against the very source of evil the devil who has many puppets down through history. God could have killed Pharaoh on the spot. He could have killed all of the Egyptian army on the spot. He could have sent chariots from heaven to lift his people out. He could have done all those things. 
But how would the faith of the people grow? How would they know that what God said he means? And how would their character grow? And how would they see the character of God? How patient he is. How good he is in setting everything up in a perfect way, including a memorial feast. God had it all planned. Who could have thought of that? I thought we're just going to leave this house of bondage and we're going to go to another place, any place but this place. This place is the pits. But before they left, God instituted Peshach with the Paschal Lamb, this Passover, commemorating that 10th plague as a type of the liberation of the Egyptians. And they saw God had many things in mind and so it is with us as we learn. We're looking for relief. We're looking for deliverance. We're looking for the shortest route possible out of Egypt. And the Lord, who is all wise and full of love, he says, not so fast. Not because he doesn't love us, but because he's trying to get our attention and the attention of our loved ones to show who they are dealing with and how his commandments and his orders his plan is non-negotiable. They were just lifted out of there. They would never know and learn that God is superior to every other so-called God. They're becoming accustomed and reoriented toward God as the Creator and the Almighty God. And as they journeyed out of Egypt, they saw miracle after miracle. They saw a miracle where their very enemies gave up their substance just because they asked them. God says, go ahead. It's yours for the asking. They saw the Red Sea open up and they went not on sloggy, muddy, mushy ground, but another miracle, not just the sea parting, but the ground is dry. The Lord says, not one feeble among them. God kept them all. Every act of God in the deliverance of his people and of you and of me and our families that we're interceding for. We must never try to hurry God up inordinately. That is, we can cry out for deliverance and when the pain is too much, cry out and say, Lord, please do it now. However, we must also understand that God in His wisdom orchestrates certain things because He's trying to do the ultimate best for us and others that we may not have considered, that they can also see the glory of God, namely our family who don't know God. If God would just do things immediately to give relief, as soon as we ask him, Lord, would you please give relief to my family member? 
You know what a family member may do? As they've done before? Run away with God's blessing. And like the nine lepers, never come back to give glory to God. But do what? Continue with my money making, my career, my home, my family, my vacation, my gadgets, my this, my that. Continue to play God. In his mercy, he does do things suddenly. But often, the all-wise Alpha and Omega waits. Because he's looking for the salvation of a soul that will go to hell. No matter how many blessings he gives them. Along with the whole family. And we saw how God had spoken. He told them, I'm doing certain things a certain way that my fear may be upon you. So that you may be kept from going to hell. You don't end up going where your oppressor went, where Pharaoh went. You can end up the same way. God told Israel later on, don't think you're special all by yourself. You're only special because I chose you. And I've done something with you. But for the grace of God, go I. You must never forget that. God's grace and grace alone. You see, God is developing our loyalty to Him. He's teaching us how mighty He is, how wise He is, how loving, how patient, how gracious, how He wants to save more than you. We may be very selfish thinking, well, as long as I'm safe and I'm safe from this hurricane, this tornado, and I have the money in the bank to relocate if I have to, and, well, I've worked hard and I have this and that and insurance and everything, and a veritable scrooge, selfish person. God is not like that, thank God. Yes, there are believers who betray the very title of believer. Because they believe in themselves after they've come to know Christ. That means they're backslidden horribly. But God wants to save more than me, more than you. He's very much concerned about our families. Therefore, he will show mercy and he will move swiftly at times. But at times, because he's trying to get through a hard heart, he'll allow different things to happen. He'll give Satan more room to do things until everybody comes to the end of themselves. And woe to the person who interferes with that, with God's plan. Pamper family members. Give them false assurance. As you heard last evening, say, God bless you, and God is not blessing them. Oh, they may have money, they may be promoted, they may have this and that. Sit in the pistol of Peter by the Holy Spirit. Men, these are men who suppose that gain is godliness. In other words, the more material comforts I have, the more success and expansion and promotion. Well, I'm doing good. I must be blessed. Many heathen kings had much. They were not blessed by God. They were allowed. And God was looking to see if the goodness of God would lead men to repentance to say, my God, I didn't do this. It's the mercy of God. Let me look up to heaven. Nebuchadnezzar was literally floored to the ground for seven periods, seasons. 
before he'd look up and surrender to God and say, Lord, it wasn't me. It was you, your mercy. Then he was restored. The people of Israel came out, but God did many things in stages. And he had a far bigger plan to effect, including things that he needed to set up that they had no clue about, such as Passover, such as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, with all of the significance for them then and the eternal significance for us in Christ. Who could have known that? No one. God planned it. You see why he had to go step by step. Why he had to go from that water turning into blood step by step. God had to get the people to understand that when he picks a man and he sends a man in his name they need to submit to that man. They can't play the man. They had issues with that. God had to deal with that. They had issues with God's promise when he said, I'll deliver you. When the depression got worse, they began to complain against God. God had to teach them, and so he has to teach us. That when we're seeking God and things get worse, Externally, circumstantially. That's when our faith should shine because it has to do with the character of the God we serve. That he will not lie. He's not a man that he should lie. I need to step up and say, my God will not fail me because he's a good God. Hallelujah. So they had to learn that it's not enough to be rescued out of the pit. You need to learn how to stand in freedom. It's not enough just to be saved. You need to know how to walk and work out that salvation. And so the Lord purposefully brought in tests, faith tests, as they progressed through the wilderness. They had the test at the waters of Marah meaning bitter. You see, Naomi, when she came back, she told Israel, don't call me Naomi. I'm not blessed. I'm not one who's favored. Call me bitter, Mara. They had the test about food. Will God provide food over here? They tempted and tested God. Ten times. God came through. He showed them, I can do a miracle. He kept trying to get through to them as he tries to get through to us. I am the Lord. And he says after judgment upon Pharaoh, they shall know that I am the Lord. He told the prophet Ezekiel, they're going to know that I am the Lord. It gives us a sense of the awesomeness and the absolute holiness of God and the infinite power and wisdom of God. If you take that away and you only think about the infinite mercy of God and grace of God, you have a mushy, sappy, 
sentimental picture of God. No wonder people sin like they're drinking water today. God has revealed himself a great deal in the Old Testament. It's not a matter of, well, I'm going to be all the less enriched if I don't read that history and read about this and that. I'm actually blind to the total character of God that he divulges in his written word. They went through these tests. God all the while said, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. But you have to fear me, 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 because I'm God, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God. It came out, they didn't know anything, they didn't know how to hold a weapon, much less fight. But he purposely brought Amalek against them. And he showed them what he can do when they depend upon God. As Moses lifted up his hands, Joshua was winning with Israelites. He showed them that you don't need to be a warrior when you come to my army. But you need to be teachable. You don't need to be all wise and be a nuclear physicist. But you need to be teachable. God says when we come to him, we need to empty ourselves. Say, Father, help me. Some people pray a whole lot. There's so many words in their prayers and you get the feeling that, you know, it seems like they're glorifying God, but they have a very strong sense of self at the core. They say, I know who I am. I know this, I know that, and I can do this, I can do that. And God is like an add-on. Blasphemously. We must have times where we come to God, we can hardly utter anything. We're so overwhelmed knowing who we're talking to. As it says in Ecclesiastes, let your words be few when you enter into his house. God is in heaven, you're in the earth, remember. In other words, he's so high. But humility, Moses learned, God was hoping as he was training Moses in this practical school in the wilderness. As he was leading them, he got to see human nature. God was trying to show them, this man I had to deal with for 80 years and prepare him for 80 years. He submitted to me for 40 years when I took him aside, although I was training him in the background in those formative years, the first half of those 80 years. He's trying to show them, look at my man. He's meek, he's humble. They came to contend about his wife that he chose, who they didn't approve of, because they were racist. 
they were wicked. Moses didn't argue with them. He's humble. Could he have? Yes, he could have. God is trying to show them you. Let me fight your battles for you. You battle in prayer, relying upon me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. They came through these tests, these, this warfare. After passing through this where more of their ugliness came out, God kept telling them, I'm still going to work with you because I love you. I have a plan. His ultimate end was, as we'll see in Exodus 40 today, was the completion of that tabernacle and then his glorious presence coming down. The devil tried. He tried to work through people, through individuals to stop God's plan, but he couldn't stop it. Now, there were people who died along the way as we were as we uh, mentioned, very important to mention, let no one think, well, um, how about God in the book of Hosea? I've heard this before. Perhaps you have also. Didn't he say that no matter what they did, how unfaithful they were, he said, I'll never leave you and I'll love you. Ephraim is my firstborn. My bowels are turning within me. That is, my, my heart is just moved. How shall I turn against him? I know he was bad, but I just can't help it. I have to go back and help him. Remember, thousands upon thousands who were Ephraim, standing for Israel, they died. They didn't make it. That means the people remaining, the remnant, were the ones to whom God's mercy came. You see? And so it is with Israel. They went through problems, but we, we have read recently, the golden calf instance, that idolatry. It says 3,000 there, and the New Testament says 23,000. We explained that, how it's not contradiction at all. Thousands lost their lives, right in the midst, everybody saw. You think? As people talk about 9-11, especially in the New York City area, the surrounding regions, somebody is bound to be affected who lives in that area. Somehow they know someone. In that horrible tragedy. And someone would be acquainted with a hundred different people or a thousand different people. So many people are attached to that. How many people do you suppose were affected when 23,000 people died? God is full of love. But he was showing them, I'm a holy God, I'm a holy God, I'm a holy God. I won't put up with your evil unless you repent. Very, very forthrightly put on display in Exodus. And the apostle, he brings out in Hebrews the mountain that they came to. The circumstances where Moses himself said, I am exceedingly afraid. He was shaking. The Lord wanted his fear to be upon the people. The question is, do I have the fear of God today? Do you have the fear of God? Has he changed? As believers, we must fear the Lord. 
and he brought them and he revealed more of himself, more of himself through the law, through the Torah. He revealed in those regulations and principles and commandments and ordinances his character as far as holiness again and also as far as love. He told them, you have to love your neighbor, not compete with them and try to get one over on them and see if your lawn can look better than theirs. He said, love your brother, love your neighbors. Don't do evil. And he had penalties. And even within those laws where the punishment was included, God had prevented excessive punishment. He's such a good God. He's a fair God. They began to learn, these people who didn't know God, all they knew was Abraham was a father somewhere. Right now we're in bondage and we're trying to just survive before they kill us. They're oppressing us more and more. What does my child have to look forward to? Slavery. My grandchildren, slavery. But God came and broke that cycle. And he was showing them his love. He said, now, you've served a hard taskmaster, Satan, working through Pharaoh and the Egyptian oppressors. But now I'll show you how joyful it is to serve me because your service to me will bless you. That's my heart. To bless Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Oh yes, the God at Sinai that thundered, but the same Jesus Christ who came and said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. How glorious. The Lord Jesus was born in slavery. Moses was born in slavery, the Lord Jesus. Because for all intents and purposes, they were under the bondage to Rome. They were not free, as they should have been. He was born into that. And as Moses' life, we saw, was threatened by Pharaoh, so by King Herod. Why did the Son of God have to go through that? Why did his Earthly parents have to escape and flee to Egypt and then return and be careful and settle in the city, which is part of the Galilean area. Why? Why this running around and escaping? Can we see that he identified with us? He identified with Moses and Exodus, with Israel, and in the wilderness where they failed the Son of God flourished he was tempted in the wilderness as they were they failed and he succeeded he defeated the devil every failure that humanity has recorded every failure in your life and in my life the son of God stands and says no more failure hallelujah because I forgive you and I redeemed you and now you will be victorious hallelujah because I am with you the great I am that revealed himself to Moses. Glory be to God. The covenant that he made included the commandments. And essentially the covenant said, 
if you follow me, I will be your God and you will be my people. Not just one people among many people who do whatever they want, but you will become a type, a prototype, and a example, an example of what my treasured people look like and are blessed with. All along, God had in mind to take the people from slavery, as we say often, from the prison to the palace. He had that land, Canaan, waiting for them. He was waiting for the sins of those wicked people who are abusing that good land with their filth. He's waiting for that to fill up so he can throw them out of there. Give it to these people. Now these people are murmuring, complaining. Can we see the grace of God? Tremendous grace. Have we murmured and grumbled against God? Have we said, I don't know if God can do this. I don't know if I want to serve God and disobeyed God. His mercy came and forgave us. His blood washed us clean. God said, let's try again. Come on. You didn't do right then, but I forgive you. Come, I really want to see you become what I intended you to become. What a loving God. He doesn't give up. Hallelujah. And we keep going. Well, the children of these people, they made it to the promised land. Out of the old generation, Joshua and Caleb made it. You see, the Son of God, He passed every test. Though in his humanity, he had a real temptation. Overcame it. Through the divine nature. We are made partakers of the divine nature. Free from the corruption that is in the world through lust. The Apostle Peter says by the Holy Spirit. We're truly free. Anyone who calls himself or herself a Christian. In bondage to sin. is actually forfeiting his or her birthright. It's taking the citizenship papers and throwing it to the dogs. It's a forfeiture. Because God guarantees whoever is born again, they have his seed within them to defeat the devil. The DNA that God has placed within us is superior to every mutant DNA that the devil has. God made this covenant and he had a plan to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey where the fruit of that land was huge. Everything was scouted and marked out beautifully as if God built a mansion and he personally went and supervised every aspect of it, every room. Inspected every material, every workmanship. Fully prepared it, fully furnished. And he told them, you come in there, you're going to get what you didn't work for. That's how good God is. He lavishes, lavishes us with his grace. Then he says, with the grace that I've given you, you get touched so deeply that you can't help but serve me. 
because that's a blessing and a privilege. You see, there is work involved, but not for grace. Hallelujah. We can never attain to that by any works. What God has lavished upon us, He's given us a heavenly cane, and are we going to make it? Are we going to be part of the remnant out of a diseased church today at large in these last days who are deceived? Are we going to be like Joshua and Caleb? It's our choice. God has placed it right there. He says, look, this is the map. This is how they behave. This is why I said he has a different spirit. They have a different spirit than the rest of these guys. We just need to look at that and say, well, how can I imitate that? I'll make it too. He gave them regulations. He gave them rules. He gave them commandments, statutes, ordinances. He told them specifically, as if giving a GPS, here's the landmark, here's the place where you have to make the right turn, you'll get to the destination. But if you make your own decisions at the intersection, when I say go a certain way, you're not going to end up where I want you to. The alternative is not somewhere that I'll be off the road and have to get back all the time. One point will be permanently off the road. That's the danger. That actually happened to many of them. In fact, almost every one of them. Wow. And yet we see God continued to show grace, show love, and what happened? They finished this tabernacle because they learned all about how to draw near to God, how to worship this God. They had no concept about how to approach Him, how to live with Him, how to worship Him, how to make His heart glad. Because, after all, they were created by Him, as all of us are. We don't know how to worship God. People think they can buy a worship CD. As I recall, a lady that was supposed to be a supervisor for my wife when she worked as a paralegal many years ago. The woman was a snake. She'd talk very softly and say all kinds of nice things, but she would be hostile against Pastor Kerber because the devil was in her. Pastor Kerber was carrying the Holy Spirit. While she was working so hard and bringing much profit to that law firm, law firm because of the blessing of God like Joseph. This woman kept oppressing and oppressing. Though Pascal was entitled to have the greatest wage increase because of the profit she brought. That was the protocol they had. This woman kept that away, oppressed her, and then piled more work upon her and let the others go free and increase their wages who did nowhere near what Pascova did. And this woman said, I love this Christian band. Oh, it just touches my heart. I love to hear them. She said, I love casting crowns. She thought she can have a claim on Christianity or God or whatever benefits she can get. Maybe you learn some worship techniques by listening to some worship band. The worship we see, because God gave the holy regulation, starts with a 
clean heart. Apart from that, no one can worship God. No matter how they sound, what worship song they choose, how good they can play the instrument or sing, so many gullible, foolish people would think if someone can hit a, such a high note or sustain it so long, how many people have you seen? They get moved and they begin to even cry and clap and holler. And, well, it's like the secular version of Apollo. The people just look for some kind of talent or supposed talent. Whoever can pull their emotional strings. Guess what? They have a worship experience right there, but it's not for God. They're worshiping the devil. And so we must never confuse that. God had to train them and teach them what real worship looks like. It has nothing to do with mere emotion, although emotion is involved. Nothing to do with talent, although God likes skilled worshipers. The primary thing he's looking for is a pure heart, devoid of bitterness and nastiness and vengeance and jealousy and selfishness. He's looking for someone who's meek, lowly. Someone who's faithful, full of faith. Someone who loves the Lord with all his or her heart, mind, soul and strength. As he would say in the second law, or the rehearsal of the law in Deuteronomy, chapter 6. God was teaching them, you see, not only did he take them out of slavery, not only did he show them in the process and route to freedom his great power and his exclusive right as the king of the universe, because he created it all. He had to have a showdown with Satan through all those demons that Satan put in Egypt that the people willingly went for. And he put them down in front of them. He demolished everything that came against them. He put them down. He shut them down. He turned Pharaoh's wrath upon his own head. He overthrew them. In the process, he was schooling his people. But this blood was necessary. They learned that right from the beginning. It was the blood upon the doorposts and the lentils that caused our families to escape the death of our firstborn. It was blood. How did this work? What does this mean to bring a lamb and inspect it four days on the 14th day? sacrifice it and take that blood and put it in front of the house. What does it mean? What does all this mean? He was training them. He was beginning to give them eternal truths. He had multiple things happening. That's how God works. He's a big God. He's a wonderful God. He's looking at the best for us and for the most people at the same time. Simultaneously. Isn't he wonderful? We need to think like the Lord. We need to say, Father, whatever you're doing is the best. Only one thing I desire, Lord, let me be well-pleasing to you in everything, Lord. Let me never hinder your purpose. Let me never bring up human sympathy when you say, cut the ties. 
Oh my God. Let me never cut the ties when you say, wait a minute. Show some more love and wait. Oh, his ways are very different than our ways. His timing. We need to know this God. God was teaching them. And so it all culminated with this worship of the living God. And that worship brought the people close to him. Isn't that true? And it brought his presence down. Exactly what happens in our church. In any place where they do it the way God wants. As we worship the living God, His glory comes down. It literally comes down. He literally does miracles because when God comes to His temple, blind eyes open, the lame begin to walk. Things happen. Sometimes it happens in stages. Sometimes instantly. We've seen both. Jesus healed the man. The man said, I see men like trees walking around. The Lord had to do another thing. Then it was clear. We learn, we get acquainted with God as we read how he dealt with these people in Exodus. How he was training them. How he was showing them how worship should be conducted and how that's what will bring the presence of God down. You see, God dwells in the midst of the praises of his people. He inhabits the praises. Anytime anyone sincerely praising God, his presence comes down and charges them in the atmosphere. That's how it is. But many, many worship kind of things, activities can happen in many churches. Many places, many conventions. The Spirit of God didn't come up. Guess who showed up? Lucifer. And nobody could discern that. But they kept going. Because it's all carnal self. But when the fear of the Lord is there, and a person or people are conscious, I've come to the living God. Oh, it's not just church. God is in the place. I need to be sober and holy and upright. All the time, yes, but particularly in the church. And may I not bring any kind of foolishness or hatred. Because God will expose that. God will deal with it. But he gives opportunity to get right. And so people are never discouraged when they're not doing well to come near to God, but they need to come in a certain way. Penitent. As the man stood in the temple alongside the Pharisee, the man smote his chest. And he looked down. He wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. He said, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. He was justified. God took it away because he meant business with God. The other one pretended. There's no pretense. This worship was pure. And it was done in a manner after the completion of the tabernacle where the people had the fear of God and the service was a worship to God God endorsed all of that by coming down so what we tried to achieve when we're rescued from slavery like Israel was 
when we're schooled in the word of God like Israel was, when we're given tests like Israel was given, even when we fail, God's mercy says, continue, relearn this, do it right, you can pass. God continues to lead them gently, lovingly, holily, miraculously, by the cloud by day and fire, pillar of fire by night. It was above that tabernacle. Everybody could see this every single day. Every moment they saw. God's presence is right there. They were led to live a life of worship. And so when we understand what we're trying to achieve as believers, the paramount top priority is learning to worship the living God in spirit and in truth. As the Lord told the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Can we say that? We worship them. It's really in spirit and in truth. This book is very foundational, as we've seen on multiple occasions. Not only with what we've discussed as broad themes, but the very details of the tabernacle building and the garments of these people who are representatives of the people to God and representatives of God to the people especially the high priest. Now every believer is clothed with that splendor God has given us. Garment of righteousness. It's invisible to the world, to the human eye. But the consciences of people recognize when someone is virtuous. They will either draw nigh to that purity and say, I want to be like that. Show me how. Or they'll become hostile to that and perish. Exodus chapter 40. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, On the first day of the month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall put in it the Ark of the Testimony, which represents the presence of God, we learned, and partition off the Ark with the veil. It has to be guarded. People die. The high priest, we learned, even the high priest, the man handpicked by God, descendant of Aaron, beginning with Aaron, he had to wear bells at the hem of his garment. Why? Bells obviously give forth a sound. These bells made of gold. Surely it was a it was a audible sign of the presence of the high priest. It was a announcement of the movement of the high priest. God said if he doesn't come with that 
garment with the bells ringing. If he doesn't come in the prescribed way, he can die. Part of the regulations and rules was that he needs to have the pomegranates alternating with the bells to hem of his garment. An announcement of every move that he made is under surveillance. Others heard it. God wanted to hear it. Of course God knows when the high priest is in the holy place before he enters through the veil where the ark of the testimony was, where his presence was. He didn't need to hear the bells to know he's coming. But the man needed to know. The sound is going before me. I'm about to enter in. The people need to know. Something sacred is happening. Listen for it. There was a sound from these golden bells. A sound related to divinity, golden bells, coming into the very presence of God. A sound that spoke about holiness also. The high priest had the gold engraving there, the plate on the mitre or the crown holding unto the Lord but he needed to have the bells also many things are written about the symbolisms of these various pieces of the garment and we can't simply take everything at face value someone's guess but we can know certain things some basic things the purpose of a bell under normal circumstances a bell on a bicycle it's an announcement that I'm coming it's for safety and sure enough if the high priest didn't have this there'd be danger on the other side of the veil because he didn't come with what God prescribed as we seek the Lord he may give further revelation but he's supposed to have warned this he would first of all hear the sound himself every movement is being watched or more specifically put, heard. He couldn't make a move without making a sound. Very sacred duties. The bells would also precede him. You see, the sound preceded his actual entrance into the Holy of Holies pomegranate many 
things have been written about that. But from what we know, whoever has eaten a pomegranate, seen it, read about it, it's a rather unique fruit in that it has so many seeds so tightly packed together. But it's said that it's a fruit that has very little pulp which normally fruit would have to sustain itself. And then the seeds would be yielded to produce more fruit. But the pulp was to sustain the fruit. And the pomegranate is very little. It seems to be all about the others, the seeds. And it's been said that this fruit has so many seeds. Perhaps it speaks to the many, many children of God. The fragrance to beautify the high priest in the temple or the tabernacle, going into the very presence of God. The heavenly sound of the bells golden bells no lesser metal but the most precious speaking of divinity and royalty these pomegranates were not bread they contained the pattern of of the different colors that we've seen already blue, purple, and scarlet. These beautiful colors again signifying heaven, royalty, salvation through blood, pomegranates, eat those seeds, red juice just spurts out everywhere. and said that blood is signified by that voluminous juice that's contained in those seeds. In pagan culture, they looked at it as a symbol of fertility. There's certainly many seeds Lord Jesus was selfless. He didn't think about himself. Pomegranate doesn't have much pulp to sustain itself. The Lord thought about us. God can give many revelations concerning these things, but we need to have the caution that although we can read many things, we need to look to the Spirit of God if it's not explicitly stated in the Scripture. We need to rely upon the Spirit of God and wait upon Him and use the wisdom that He gives because I've read things that really have no basis but people write things sometimes. 
But certainly everything has a meaning. And uh, these are some of the things that appear to be true because of the nature of these objects without even looking at it in a metaphoric or abstract sense. God was dealing with the people. He was showing them, just like the Passover lamb. They never would have guessed that it would point to Jesus Christ later on as the lamb of God, that he would actually shed his blood, human blood, divine blood, for our souls. And so the pomegranate certainly was one of the um, most desirable fruits. It said that it was one of the seven fruits that were considered excellent in uh, the times of Israel. And also is found in the, the temple built by Solomon. Jeremiah talks about it, also in the last chapter of Jeremiah. But nothing further, nothing to describe the meaning and symbolism. We can know by the nature of the fruit, it has a lot of red juice. It just bursts out. Certainly, color of blood and lots of it. And many, many seeds. A rather unique quality for that fruit. And it's been said, very little pulp, unlike other fruits, to sustain itself. In other words, giving itself the focus of the seeds. The Son of God suffered, he travailed, and his, his soul was satisfied seeing who? Posterity, descendants, the fruit that would come out of it. All of us. Hallelujah. You shall put in it this presence of God and the representation, the Ark of the Testimony, and partition off the Ark with the veil. You shall bring in the table and arrange the things that are to be set in order on it. So they've constructed it. The instructions were given. The people were handpicked by God and anointed to do the work. The materials came in. The offerings came in. Then the work got underway. Then the completion of the work. Then the inspection of the work. Now putting the things exactly in place. You see, every aspect until the completion was minutely scrutinized by God himself. Nothing is left in a random manner. Nothing is done sloppily. Hallelujah. How meticulously God has designed a plan for my life, a blueprint, as we say, in your life. Every single aspect of it from start, from scratch, as they say, all the way to perfection and completion. This is our God. The building of the tabernacle. The laborers involved the anointing that was necessary, the quality and kinds of material and workmanship, the completion and the inspection of it, and now 
the orderly arrangement of it precisely as God wanted it to be placed. You shall bring in the table and arrange the things that will be set in order on it. And you shall bring in the lampstand and light its lamps. You shall also set, we talked about the lamp being the presence of God also, the light. Jesus Christ, the presence of God, God with us, Emmanuel, the light of the world. The table, the showbread on the table, he's the bread that came down from heaven. The table was certainly a piece of furniture to support and hold up the bread that represented, represented the 12 tribes. But it's a, also a meeting place table. It's a place where people would sit down and eat or have fellowship. There'd be some kind of activity there where people would be in a rather intimate space. Intimate presence of God with what on top of it? Memorial. All the 12 tribes are so dear to God. Every one of God's children is so dear to Him. The high priest had the 12 tribes on the chest and the breastplate and six on each shoulder and onyx stones. And 12 loaves of bread here. And we saw in Revelation, we saw in the Gospels, The Lord told his disciples, you will judge the tribes. You sit on 12 thrones. God never forgets. Hallelujah. Those he loves. Anna waited a long time. Simeon also. God didn't forget them. He didn't forget the fasting, the praying. The eager expectation when, Lord, we're old. By the Spirit, they came at the appointed time out of all the babies coming there. No external sign whatsoever. No halo on the head of Jesus or Mary or Joseph. As man tries to paint these things to give some kind of reality or substance to the human eye. No one knew. The Holy Ghost told Simeon or Simon, the elder, prophet and Anna the prophetess this is the one this child and he said let my let your servant depart in peace for my eyes are seen he's seen the salvation of Israel the glorious one the holy one the redeemer Jesus Christ, we spoke about the fragrance of Christ. Also in Ephesians 5, he gave himself as a sweet-smelling aroma, a sacrifice for us. Verse 5, Vexus 40. You shall also set the altar of gold for the incense before the ark of the testimony and put up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. Then you shall set the altar of the burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. 
and you should set the layer or laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Everything that was required was all made ready. You shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen at the court gate and you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and you shall hallow it or make it holy and all its utensils every spoon everything and it shall be holy you shall anoint the altar of the burnt offering and all its utensils consecrate the altar it's been set apart the altar shall be most holy and you shall anoint the laver and its base and consecrate it everything was anointed then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle of the meeting and wash them with water if they're going to minister they have to be cleaned how important it is for us to check ourselves when we evangelize when we share a testimony when we sing a song a praise to God when we preach do anything for the Lord whatever we do in the house of God whatever we do we recall in the book of Acts that the people that were supposed to take care of the Grecian widows and make sure everybody's getting fair treatment the men that waited on the tables they had to be filled with the spirit of God hallelujah if we want to serve God we need to be filled with the spirit of God we need to seek that and know everything is holy unto the Lord this is God's house and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister to me as priest you shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him you're set apart now that he may minister to me as a priest and you shall bring his sons and clothe them with tunics the linen garments you shall anoint them as you anointed their father that they may minister to me as priests for their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations enduring priesthood throughout their generations thus Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him so he did we'll see a number of times God will say this Moses was watching Moses was involved he had to complete it and give an account to God and so do we as pastors every service that's done every person that's been chosen by God to make sure the work that God wants done is done exactly as God wants it done and that God is well pleased and it came to pass in the first month of the second year on the first day of the month that the tabernacle was raised up so Moses raised up the tabernacle fastened its sockets set up its boards put in it its bars put in its bars and raised up its pillars and he spread out the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it as the Lord had commanded Moses 
He took the testimony and put it into the ark, inserted the poles through the rings of the ark, and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. Those poles, the staves, were not to be taken out of it. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, hung up the veil of the covering, and partitioned off the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tabernacle of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil. And he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tabernacle of meeting, across from the table, on the south side of the tabernacle. The entrance was the east side, and so the north side would be the table, which would be the right side, as we mentioned before, when we enter in. The left side would be the lampstand, and in front would be the altar of incense. So the orientation, because the entrance was the east, the altar incense would be the west side. He put the lampstand in the tabernacle of meeting across from the table on the south side of the tabernacle. And he lit the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the gold altar in the tabernacle of meeting in front of the veil. And he burned sweet incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inaugurated everything also. Not only supervised the work, inspected it, set it in order. He was consecrated himself. But he also burned the sweet incense. He hung up the screen at the door of the tabernacle. Moses, he raised the tabernacle up, fastened everything. He made sure it was done right. And he went and did these things. He lit the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. put the gold altar there where it belonged, burned the sweet incense. He hung up the screen door at the door of the tabernacle, screen door of the tabernacle, and he put the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered upon it burnt offering and the grain offering. As the Lord had commanded Moses, he set the laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and put water there for washing. And Moses, Aaron, and his sons would wash their hands and their feet with water from it. I wonder how many ministers would go to meetings and conferences and churches to preach. Never ever think of praying and saying, Lord, cleanse me. Many people say, Lord, use me and may the word bless the people and I want you to speak through me. And But how many people pray before they do something for God, Lord. Cleanse my heart, Lord Jesus. Take away anything that is not of you, Lord, and displeasing to you, Lord. How can I minister, Lord, unless you clean me? How can you work through a vessel unless it's clean? 
Help me, Jesus. To have a check. That's the way. To minister before the Lord, to be used by God. To have that awe of God. It's not service for people, so they can clap and they can say, you're a great preacher, or while we're blessed. The primary reason in the audience, the Master, speaking the oracles of God, aware that God is present, He's watching, and we're representing Him. That's why we don't care what anybody thinks. We have to speak what God says. That's our job, not to be people pleasers. Paul said, if I would please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. They had to wash, symbolic of the cleansing of the soul. Wash their hands and their feet with water from it. You see? Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet, Lord. If I don't wash you, you have no part of me. Lord, not just my feet, but my whole body, head. No, you just need your feet to be washed, Peter. See, you're saved by faith, but you need to know that many things are there that can attach themselves to you. And we may need to confess certain things that we didn't even consider until we came to God's presence, especially before ministry. Not to say that God's going to condone people who deliberately sin. But to know that I need to check myself before I enter in to minister. Not just a question of lack of effectiveness. It's a question of life and death. If we do something unworthily, don't repent. And say, Lord, I understand that before I minister, I need to be clean before you. I need, Lord, to know that you are well pleased with me. And I need to go in knowing that your eyes are upon me and I'm having my eyes upon you as a minister. People are secondary. How many ministers do even understand that concept? Talk about God and preach about God with their eyes around the people and their reactions and how they're received. Or We're here to deliver a message from God. That's all. We trust God to work mightily because we're approved of God, as Paul says. We are living epistles of God with the fleshly hearts where God has written upon our hearts His very law, not on tablets of stone. They washed before they entered it. And he raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the screen of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. What a task. What an awesome, glorious task and privilege. It came to that day when it was all done. Everything was done exactly as God wanted. He would take nothing less than that. God shows his approval. The very next verse says, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
this meeting place, this tent of meeting, is a place where the people came to meet with God through Moses, through Aaron, through their sons, through his sons, Aaron's sons. But the tabernacle itself was the dwelling place of God. It's called the tabernacle of Moed. It's an assembly denoting people for the people. Tent of meeting. The tabernacle is miskan. It's the house of God, the residence. The cloud covered the tent of the congregation, the King James Version says. And the tabernacle was the place where the glory of God filled. So there was a place where God's presence was. But the other place, the courtyard and other places, including the entrance to the tabernacle site, was where the people would come to meet and bring their sacrifices. But inside, the actual tabernacle, the glory of the Lord flooded and Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle it was so powerful the cloud in the entire area and the glory within was so overwhelming that he couldn't enter and when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. Moses asked them, the Lord. He asked the Lord, Lord, I want to see your glory. And if your presence won't go with this, I'm not going. Just, just get rid of me too. Because the people sinned. I said, no, I'm going to be with you. I will show you my glory. They watched for the signal from God. If the cloud was not taken up, then they didn't journey until it was taken up. But if the cloud moved, they would go forward. 
In verse 38 it says, For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day. And obviously in the dark, fire. The Lord put fire as a pillar over by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all the journeys. They had that continual, tremendously supernatural, visible manifestation of God's presence day and night. Can you imagine that? If you look in the distance or whatever tribe was near, including Judah, or a little bit further back, everybody can see. Look at that pillar of cloud. That's unusual. It's not a normal thing to have the pillar of cloud above. I mean, it's there until it gets dark every day. Every day it's there. It's God's presence. And at nighttime, a pillar of fire, where did that come from? God said, He's going to be present. And it's moving when we have to move. They were brought from slavery, from this tremendous burden and groaning into absolute freedom, God taking them into his own hands to sanctify them through the blood. He set them apart right there in Egypt. He taught them his law. He provided for them and helped them to overcome temptations. He continued to speak to them about his presence and how he would dwell with them. And he gave a pattern from heaven to build this tabernacle. And he watched over it with great eagerness as the people anticipated with great joy. God is going to live here, right in the midst of our community. In our community. When everything was done, His glory came so powerfully. People saw the man that walked up to Mount Sinai, talked with God, and God said, I speak with him face to face. This man can't enter in, not even him. Showing that God not only condescended to meet with everyone, including Moses, he's so high, but he has to hold back his glory. Otherwise people die because he's awesome. And he does make it possible even for Moses and the high priest and the priests to come near to do the ministration to atone for the people's sins through the sacrifices and teach the people about who he is through his word, his law. He allows it to happen. He steps back. He veils his glory to a large degree. So this can happen how thoughtful he is, how loving he is, and how he transforms people. We saw Moses' face was shining when he came down in the mountain. We saw that Caleb and Joshua, or we will see, we saw something of Joshua already. 
He didn't leave the tabernacle. God, the presence of God will transform people so that they can become holier and holier unto the character is perfectly aligned with God's character because His Spirit is upon them. And so there's a progress that begins from Exodus that continues all the way till the time of the Lord Jesus and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, the absolute final consummation and fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment in Revelation when it's written God will tabernacle with man. He'll literally come down. And this time, this time, hallelujah, we will see him as he is. But we shall be like him. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for truth. Thank you, Lord, for your marvelous plan that is beyond us, Lord. What you begin and what you have in mind, we don't know. Until we follow you and obey you and you give revelation step by step. We know your ways are higher than our ways, Lord. Your thoughts higher than our thoughts. And you always say, come up. Come up. To learn of me. You always say, come closer that I can bless you beyond your comprehension. Hallelujah. And use your life. Thank you, Lord God. I pray that all of us would press in to know you, living God, to have a fear of you, Lord, that we should be eager to obey your voice, holy God, and to bask in your love, knowing that you have everything under control. Glory, hallelujah. For the God of plenty. For the God of our salvation. For the God of healing. By his stripes we're healed in our soul, in our body, in our land, in our homes, in everything we have. We have divine provision, divine protection, divine prosperity. You've taken us from groaning under severe oppression from Satan, under delusion and deception and disobedience, loved us, taken us under your wing, Lord. You're training to be more than conquerors in action, in practice, to go through this wilderness in this world and route to our heavenly Canaan to live with you forever. And thank and praise you, Lord. Continue, Lord, to guide everyone, everything you're speaking to each of us every day. Lord, help us to prize that. Everything you're speaking individually, Lord, specifically to every one of us, throughout the day, throughout the meetings, throughout our Bible reading, throughout our prayer time especially, 
Help us to treasure that and to act on it. Worship your spirit and truth. That the glory may come in our homes like never before, Lord, into our very bodies, into our lives like never before. We thank you, Lord. We bless your holy name. We thank you for bringing us to the end of this book and this first very cursory, Father, treatment of it, just the beginnings. But he helped us, Lord. He helped us. Thank you, God. Cause us to open our eyes to many more truths in the rest of your holy book. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.